Welcome to episode 10 of the Axiom Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Brandon, and welcome to another edition of the Axiom Podcast. This is episode 10. We're going to be talking about constrained creativity. And creativity is one of those things that a lot of people think is kind of the blank canvas, uh, being able to create something that wasn't there before. But some of the most creative work that happens happens because, in large part, the canvas has already been dictated to you. And you have to live within the constraints that you're given in order to produce something that uh, that others will find value in. So today we're going to be talking about this idea of creativity, but creating something when you've kind of got the edges of the sandbox already defined for you. And the reason that this is an important topic to me is because this is exactly what happens in business. You have all different kinds of professions. You have professions that are typically creative in nature, ones where um, you know the singers, the songwriters, the expressive artists – uh, playwrights, authors, um, those people, by definition, we, be, we, we view those folks as, well, those are creative people. They're born with a creative gene or they've got this special ability to create stuff and I just don't have that. Uh, that's why I'm a lawyer. That's why I'm an accountant or that's why I'm an engineer. But some of the most creative people in the world don't exist in the standard artistic professions. And the reason is because creativity is not limited to one profession or another. We all have the ability to create inside of us. And when you have this false, uh, I don't want to say interpretation, but false belief that creativity is just one of those things that belongs in a vocation, then you shortchange yourself uh, from some really fulfilling work. And and I've told people many times, this is the kind of work that I enjoy doing the most. And we talked in the last podcast about this difference between the skill set of what I do and and the kind of art of what I do and, and the creativity aspect of it um, is definitely that kind of skilled art. It's something that you become more and more competent at the more you do it. And then there's a discipline that follows on to that. And frankly, for me, the discipline part is not all that creative. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say paint by numbers, but there's a standard process that you need to follow because that's been proven to get results in, in the kind of work that we do. So for me, the, the creativity that comes in the first part of that skill set of, of an engagement where we're trying to define what's happening uh, understand what the issues are, scope out the problem set, and then come up with solutions. That's incredibly creative work. After that, we move into the execution side, which is the discipline of making sure that the things we've uh, articulated and created in the planning phase actually come to fruition and people do the things that they're supposed to do to make those happen. So when uh, when we talk about creativity and I start to tell people that if you want to become really creative, you need to have constraints around you. They look at me like I've got three heads and they go, no, no, no. The the whole idea of creativity is we're not supposed to have boundaries. We're not supposed to limit ourselves. We really need to think outside of the box and 
you know, don't put a box around us. And you don't have to uh, work in an environment very long where you start to understand that the constraints are there to make you exercise your brain in ways that wouldn't be there otherwise. So, for instance, if you tell – if I tell my six-year-old, I want you to write me a story and I give him a blank piece of paper probably eight times out of ten unless there's something that he's just been doing that he wants to tell me about or there's something going on in his world that he's super excited about. Eight out of ten times he's going to look at me and with this blank look and be like, well, I don't – I can't come up with anything to write about. Or uh, when the kids – it's summertime here and the kids are out of school and so they'll – you know they've got i mean they've got a room full of stuff that they could do right they've got a garage full of stuff that they could tote out in the yard and play with they've got a swimming pool in the backyard they've got all this stuff that they could do and they're like i don't have anything to do because there there are no constraints it's like you can do anything you want to you know it's free day there's nothing on our calendar today you can you can do whatever and they those are the days and they're like oh, i'm bored but if I tell my six-year-old, I want you to write me a story about one cool thing that happened to you yesterday. And when you tell me that story about one cool thing that happened yesterday, so I want you to tell it to me um, from the perspective of a dog who is following you around all day. And you would be amazed at how creative he could get with that constraint around him. I've told him what he has to write about. And I've told him the point of view that he has to come at it from. And you just watch the creative juices start to flow, and pretty soon there's this incredible thing on the page. Or when they come to you and they say, oh, I'm bored, I don't know what to do, there's nothing to do, there's nothing to do. And uh, you take them out in the garage and you say, here is a piece of poster board, and I'm only going to give you three colors of marker, and I want you to draw me a picture that has at least seven colors in it. And they, they're like, well, how is that going to happen? And they start to figure out, well, you can mix the different colors of the marker to come up with new colors. And it depends on how hard you press to get a certain color to be a different shade. And all of a sudden, they they start coming up with all kinds of creative things to do. And then they, they not only want to draw on the poster, they want to get the staple gun out and put staples in it. And they want nails. And, they want, I mean, and it just keeps going and going and going. So constraints are the thing that really allow us to explore boundaries. Without the constraints, a lot of times we stay very close to home and we don't take risks and we don't push the edge. So there's a lot to be said for thinking outside of the box. But a lot of the creative process happens right out right at the box's edges. A lot of the creative process happens because the constraints dictate that theory, you know uh, metaphorically speaking, we are inside the box. But we are pushing out. We're pushing the sides of the box out because we're trying to create this new space. And uh, it's funny, to, you know, one of the things that I've noticed with with my boys is if we go to a playground and it's got a fence around it, then you know they'll be climbing on the fence, they'll be playing tag, they'll be bouncing off the fence, they'll be running a zigzag across the playground. But they are using every available square inch of that fenced-in playground. But if we go to a playground where it's a this huge open expanse with maybe five or six ball fields around it and there happens to be a playground kind of in the middle and there's nothing else around it, they stay within about 20 feet of all the playground equipment 
and that's a very good uh, – If that gave me a lot of insight into the kind of business problems I was dealing with because once I could paint the sandbox or the playground fence for my clients and get them to understand the boundaries or the box that we were working in, man, pretty soon they were pushing right outside all the way to the edge of that box, exploring every option within the playground to see if there might be a solution to the problem that they were trying to solve. And a, a lot of the work that we're talking about – happens in the context of solving problems for me. I mean, that's my world. Uh, that's what I do every day is, is help businesses solve different kinds of problems. So if they don't have a problem to solve, then there's really not a need for me to come in. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about today in terms of creativity has to come with the creativity that, that I find and, and, um, and tap into when I'm trying to solve a problem, specifically some kind of business problem. But I mean, if you're not in business and you happen to be listening to this podcast, I think that this probably has some uh, some good insight for you as well. There's a couple of articles that I'm going to link up to in the show notes that when I was when I was um, thinking about doing this topic, I th- I thought to myself, I'm like, I'm sure that somebody else has covered this before. I'm sure that th- that I'm not the only person who's ever uh, been like, oh, you know, I- I'm much more creative when I have some limits or some constraints placed around me. So I did a little bit of searching around, and there's, there are two articles. One's a Forbes article, uh, a guest post on their blog, and the other is a, a Harvard Business Review blog post. The, um, but the best one is one from uh, the Buffer blog on the, the, the psychology of limitations. And uh, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. And, it, and it's, again, I, I don't think that I've cornered the market on this idea. And, and for all I know, I, w- I stole it from somebody else a long time ago. But I think a lot of this stuff is common sense. If nothing else, it's very practical. When you start doing this kind of work where you're trying to solve problems and you're trying to create solutions for things, then uh, this stuff just makes sense. Now, if you're not in a spot where you have to do that a lot, then uh, this might sound revelatory and you go, oh, I would have never thought about that. But trust me, if you're if you're like me where you're having to solve problems every day and that's almost all of us <laughs> live in that world where there's business or home or family or whatever, uh, then you're going to go, well, yeah, this is a lot of common sense. Well, common sense, to get practical application out of common sense, you really need to you know, kind of articulate it. That's That's the reason that everybody knows – that the folks who set goals are, you know, whatever the number is, 20 times more likely to achieve uh, their resolutions than those who who don't have written goals. But the the practical aspect of it is write them down. I mean, it's not enough just to have the goal. So it's again with this stuff, it's not enough just to know to say, oh yeah, that stuff Joey's talking about. That's common sense. Actually, put it into practice and use the takeaways that I'm going to give you. Kind of the tips and tricks section that we'll get to at the end of the of the. Um, podcast to use this stuff and you'll go, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So when there was a TV show that I used to watch religiously when I was, I don't know, uh, maybe pre-teenager, teenager, or, you know, early teen years. Um, and it was, it was a really cool show for me at that time because the guy, the main character in the show was incredibly creative, but we called his creativity something else. We called it ingenuity. And I don't know, I haven't taken the time even, and that might be terrible show prep, but I didn't take the time to look up what ingenuity is defined as. But here's how I define ingenuity. I think 
creativity in the face of very high constraints is called ingenuity. I think that's where ingenuity springs from. When you've got incredible constraints around you and you're able to come up with a creative solution to the problem, that's where the ingenious solutions show up. So this main character, he had all these – every show is like two or three ingenious solutions to some problem he was in and he had incredible constraints and it was MacGyver. So any of you who grew up watching MacGyver, you know what I'm talking about. And it was funny because you know I would do uh, stuff. I was doing some stuff with um, a choir and and uh, some technical stuff where I was kind of like a sound engineer. I had a terrible singing voice, so I definitely wasn't in the choir for that. But I love technology. I was I was the Radio Shack guy, you know, with the breadboard and soldering stuff together. And I was always interested in how mixers worked and speakers and acoustics and all that stuff. So I got recruited to. Um, to run the soundboard for this choir and we traveled a little bit and it was kind of cool. But, um, you know, I would come, we would be on tours and we'd be on the road for, you know, I don't know, it was never a long time, but say maybe five to seven, eight days. And, uh, when you're out there and you've got all this equipment and you're hauling it onto a tour bus and off the tour bus and onto a tour bus and off the tour bus and on stage and off stage and you're wheeling it in and out of these different venues, stuff breaks. I mean, it just does. It's not meant to be, carried around all over the place all the time. And uh, so I had my little toolkit with me and I was always, you know, before a show or after a show or wherever we were staying, you know, I was dragging stuff on the bus home with me uh, to where we were staying and and trying to fix it. And uh, that was my nickname, MacGyver. And for me, that was like a badge of honor. It was like, you know, Joey MacGyver this or Joey MacGyver that. And I just ate it up because I loved that idea of how I can create something when I don't have much to work with. And a more recent example of of this kind of ingenious creativity uh, is from several years ago, the, the movie Apollo 13 uh, with Tom Hanks. is one of my favorite movies. And uh, I love the scene. I'll put it in the show notes. But I love the scene where they find out that the, um, the oxygen scrubbers on the limb module that all the astronauts are using as a lifeboat – are not uh, keeping up with the amount of CO2 in the air. And they have extra filters that they can use, but they're literally square filters, and the unit that they have to put them in on the lunar landing module is round. So they've got this problem of trying, literally trying to fit the square peg in the round hole. And, And so you see this engineer come in, the group of engineers around a table, and he says, all right, guys, uh, he, they dump all this stuff out on the table, it's two big boxes of stuff. And there's spacesuits and there's manuals and there's hoses and there's you know, all kinds of stuff that, that are just kind of the supplies that they know are on the ship. He dumps all this stuff on the table and he says, uh, okay, guys, we have to find a way to, to fit this. And he holds up the, the square filter. We have to find a way to fit this into the hole for this and he holds up the round filter using nothing but that and he points to all the stuff on the table and so they go to work and at the end of the day they come up with this crazy contraption that allows the astronauts to use the square filters that they have plenty of and and event you know not basically asphyxiate you know that's the kind of stuff that uh you know high drama i don't run into those situations in my work every day with clients um, it would certainly be more exciting, but probably a lot more stressful. But it, there is a rush when it comes uh, w- when you find that solution. And a lot of times people will say things like, 
oh, you know, the solution was right under our nose the whole time. Well, the reason that you hear that is because the solution usually had to use resources that were there the entire time. Because when we talk about constraints, I'm going to talk about some different types of constraints in just a second. But when we talk about constraints, resource constraints, you know, that covers a, a whole universe of types of constraints. Resources could be all kinds of things. So when you f- hear people say, oh, it was, you know, it was staring us in the face, the, the, pro- the solution to the problem was staring us in the face the whole time, or it was right under our nose. Well, the solution wasn't right under your nose. The resource that you used in the solution was right under your nose, um, but the way that you used that resource was totally unique, was, was, had not been done before. And the reason that the resource was right under your nose is because we were constrained to use only the resources that we had right under our nose. So I hear that a lot in my day-to-day work. You know, it's like it's, – it's funny and it's a little disheartening at times because um, – if if you don't have those constraints and you can just go out and bring in the shiny new resource that costs umpteen thousand dollars and it solves the problem, everybody goes, oh, look at that resource. That's such a great resource. But when you come up with an ingenious solution using a resource that's already there, people look at you and go, oh, yeah, it was here the whole time. You know, So it's – you know, you kind of have to remind them that, well, yeah, it's here the whole time, but nobody thought to use it in this way until you guys did the work to come up with the right solution. So give yourself some credit. This stuff really does work. So when, you, when you're talking about constraints, um, here's the thing. A lot of the times the reason – that people are dealing with a problem and haven't been able to solve it is because they believe that they have constraints that they don't have. They believe that they've you know, kind of constrained themselves into a corner. And, and what, I, what I want to talk about is there's two types of constraints, and I don't know if this is – again, I seriously doubt that this is just Joey's idea. I'm sure somebody else has articulated this somewhere else, but – when I work with clients and we're trying to define the edges of the sandbox, a lot of times that sandbox or that playground, I mean, it's tiny. It's tiny, tiny and because people believe or, or they've put on themselves all these uh, artificial constraints. So we have real constraints and we have artificial constraints. So first, let me give you some some examples of real constraints. These are things that when you get down to solving the problem, when you, when you want to exercise that creative muscle in your brain, you're going to have to do it with the, these boundaries, and you're going to have to take these into account. So one of the biggest, most uh, familiar constraints, real constraints, is capital constraints, money. We don't have unlimited capital. We don't have the ability to just go out and purchase the solution. Now, it, there are in business. There are a lot of solutions that already exist, um, and that but and they can be had for a price. But we can't afford to pay that price. So capital constraints um, can be an issue. You know, one of the big capital constraints or things that we uh, talked about uh, last week, I believe it was, we were talking about. Um, you know, for a lot of a lot of problems or a lot even growth when trying to grow a company. You can grow really fast if you have unlimited capital because you can just go out and hire people to do the things that you need to do. And when we talk about um, you know, the need for higher effectiveness and higher productivity and that kind of stuff, 
that's that those kind of conversations usually you're not having those conversations because you have unlimited capital because if you have unlimited capital it's like well let's just throw more people at it let's just have uh, you know a, a larger budget for personnel on whatever that project is uh, so capital constraints are a direct there's a direct correlation between capital constraints and being able to go out and purchase a solution. There's an indirect correlation or connection to cap- capital constraints when it comes to just hiring extra people. You know, if you don't have unlimited capital, you can't do that. Other resource constraints, I mean, there could be other, you, you say resources, that covers all kinds of stuff. One of the biggest con- real constraints that you'll deal with is time. Uh, you know, there are, given enough time, there's certainly plenty of ways to solve a problem, but time is often a very critical uh, constraint, a real constraint. And you run, I run into this a lot if we're dealing with turnaround situations. And in those situations, the clock is ticking because in a turnaround situation, you're usually usually losing money. And there's a pool of money uh, available and there's basically a hole in the bottom of the swimming pool that needs to be plugged. And if you don't plug it fast enough, the game is over. So uh, sometimes people will look at that as a capital constraint and they'll go, well, you know, if we had more money, we could make this work. And there's a, if you ha- you have to do the due diligence and you have to understand the problem well enough to say, well, you think that this is a capital constraint, but it's not not really a capital constraint. It's more a time constraint uh, because you can keep dumping money into this pool, but it's going to keep running out the bottom. Uh, so you may you may uh, you may expand the constraint a little bit. So you know we may at the at our current rate we may be burning through uh, cash at a rate, so we're going to be done in thirty days, and you're going to dump more money into the swimming pool, and so now it's just sixty days. It's still a time constraint. That's the constraint. That, it's not a capital constraint. It's still a time constraint. The only thing you've done is expand it from a 30-day constraint to a 60-day constraint and give us more time to work with. Um, time constraints also show up um, in, in uh, sales. So if you can't make the sale by a certain date or if you can't deliver the project by a certain date, you might lose it. Uh, so that becomes crunch time, and you have everybody working around the clock to deliver the proposal or to come up with the product solution or to get the prototype finished. Um, and you can come up with some very creative solutions when you have exceptional time constraints. We're going to talk about self-imposed constraints uh, later if we get to it. But one of the things that, that I'll say now is if you have – if you're having – trouble being creative, a self-imposed time constraint or an artificially imposed time constraint can really, really help you with that. Um, you know, it's, the word for it's procrastination. So how do you cure procrastination? You have a deadline. You know, the, the, the uh, procrastination's over once the deadline gets there. Nobody procrastinates after the deadline. You know, the, you've you've missed the deadline. You're, you've had to pay whatever consequences are going to have to be paid for missing the deadline. People will procrastinate up to the deadline, but just before the deadline, they'll work their tails off and they'll get it done, or they won't. So uh, the time constraint. A lot of times, people look at it as, "Oh, that's a bad thing. I wish we had more time." But I will use an artificially imposed time constraint in almost all of my consulting engagements 
because it's incredibly effective at forcing people to be creative. And it's one of those things that can work with you uh, or work for you in a really good way. I'm going to come back to that later. Uh, Distance can be a constraint, although less so. And with professional services and other types of service businesses, um, distance may still be a constraint. So for instance, service business, I have a client that just – um, in the last year or so, he saw a hole in the market, and he decided that he was going to fill it. So he created a linen service that in his industry. He couldn't get good linen service. It was you know either the service was bad, or the prices were high, or the turnaround time wasn't great. And so he said, you know what? I think I can build a separate business around this, and he did it. Well, distance is a constraint in that business. So he can service because it's a service business. He can service. Uh, other customers within a specific geographic region, but with his with his business the way it is now, he can't service customers in California here from Florida. He can't service customers on the east coast of Florida from the west coast of Florida without you know a major major revamping of the business. So distance can be a constraint in that case. Now, when you're talking about pure knowledge work, you know distance is less of a constraint now than ever. Um, and sometimes you you might think that it's a constraint. I know that when I started to work with companies out of the area, before I started to work with companies out of the area, I thought that distance was a real constraint. And then I found out that that was actually an artificially imposed constraint that I was putting on myself just because I didn't have the experience with some of the tool sets and and some of the the um, I didn't I did not yet have clients who had the right perceptions about how this work was done and once I got those it kind of took the blinders off my eyes and I went you know I was I was kind of dictating that constraint more than anybody else. So distance is one of those that you know like a lot of these it could be real or it could be self-imposed. Um technology is often a real constraint. Sometimes it's the case that the technology just does not exist yet. Um and you have to work within the bounds of that. We had I had a client years ago who wanted to um, – he, he was trying to find out how to put geofences around work sites so that he could tell when people showed up to job sites and when they left. And it was a great idea, but it was about 10 years ahead of its time. And that kind of stuff is very commonplace now where you, you just issue everybody a cell phone or you put a little box in their vehicle and it will tell you when they're within – you know, 200 yards or 100 yards of job site location that's in your dispatch system. But back then, it didn't exist, and we had to find other ways around that. And, you know, this was back in the days of uh, texting pagers. So, you know, we, we found a way to do it and um, to validate that they actually were there, but it required some some crazy workarounds technology-wise because his ideas were way ahead of where the current tech was. Um, adoption in the market can sometimes be a real um, constraint. You know, if people are, um, you know, if, if you have, I'm trying to think of an example out of my my client list. Um, but in a, in a so in a previous life, uh, before I was in public accounting for a while, and then I left, and I was a, a controller CFO and an operations person for this this dot-com company. Um, actually, this was before the dot-com. This was another little company that we sold uh, right after I joined the founder. 
Uh, but this company made set-top boxes. And so these were like – these were after web TV, but it was kind of like web TV on steroids and it had some proprietary technology in it that allowed um, the the ISP or the company who was providing the box to track purchasing behavior. So it was kind of like – you know, they they were getting the data – that Google gets on AdWords before AdWords was really something that anybody paid attention to. And so it was a really neat thing, right? It was, it was, I mean, nobody could argue with the technology, with the product. The product was stellar and advertisers couldn't wait to get their hands on it. And this firm out of Canada, you know, very multi-million billion dollar company wound up purchasing it from us uh, because we saw that we just couldn't take it where it needed to go. But they failed at it too, and the reason they failed at it was because the market adoption rate for high-speed broadband wasn't there yet. You know, you could get high-speed broadband, but it was like three or four hundred dollars a month, and you really needed it for this technology to prove its worth for people to be able to purchase the things online um, in a volume that would create the market data that was valuable to um, to advertisers. So. That was a good case where the market wasn't there yet, and if you were to launch that same product today, you know obviously somebody else at Google has found a way with AdWords to solve that problem of getting data back to the advertisers. Uh, but had Google not done that, you know that wouldn't be an issue today because everybody's got you know whatever it is fifty down twenty up high speed internet. So technology and adoption both kind of go hand in hand. Those are probably two sides of the same coin. Uh, the market's readiness for different things. Sometimes the market's just not there uh, and, and it's not going to be there for a while. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example of that. Mm. Well, so this is in the, in the dot-com company. Um, one of the, the things that we are trying to sell were advertising packages to packaged goods manufacturers like General Mills and Hormel and all these folks. And so what we would do is we would go out and we would get them to uh, put coupons on our website. And then users of the website could go download those coupons and print them at home. And this was in 1999-2000. And the packaged goods manufacturers were terrified that uh, people would – you know, somebody would set up a, literally set up an inkjet printer in their home and run off tens of thousands of coupons and run them through a, a laundry dryer to make them look like they've been stuck in somebody's jeans pocket and then take them down to their local, uh, you know, Walmart or Publix or, or whatever supermarket, Safeway supermarket, and uh, turn them in for, you know, 5,000 tubes of toothpaste. And they were going to, you know, P&G was going to lose all this money because somebody was fraudulently using coupons. And our market, which was the packaged goods manufacturers of the world, they just were not ready for this kind of stuff yet. They were scared to death that because they didn't control the printing presses, you know, the home user controlled their inkjet printer, that they were going to abuse that. Now, nowadays, print-at-home coupons are everywhere. But 14 years ago, the market just wasn't ready for it, and that can be that was a real constraint, and that constraint actually led to the demise of the company. We were not able to come up with a creative solution to overcome that. Uh, we just believed that if we told them that it was safe, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, they would 
they would uh, buy in, but they didn't. Um, competitor responses is another one. Um, sometimes a real constraint is you know that if we do this, our competitor is going to react in this way. They've told us that they're going to react in that way. Um, and that happens more in regional businesses where, uh, so for instance, if I've worked with contractors here locally, and they know that they could win the business and increase their market share temporarily by lowering prices. But they also know that their competitors would probably hopscotch them and lower prices even further, and so that that win would be only temporary. And so whatever solution we come up with to gain back market share has to operate within that constraint of knowing our competitor is going to respond in a certain way. Right? Um, incompetence is often a real constraint. Uh, I'm, I've dealt with this recently um, where – the issue of competence or incompetence is a very real constraint in what the owner is going to be able to do with the business because the owner is not the operator. And to be honest, the owner doesn't know a whole lot about the business. It's not a business that the owner started. It's not a business that the owner was involved in on a day-to-day basis. The owner just all of a sudden found themselves with this business. And the competence or incompetence of a few key people is a serious constraint in what our options are for moving forward. And we have to operate within that constraint system. And, all, and a lot of these, these constraints, they overlap and interleave with, interleave with each other because in this situation that I'm talking about now with the owner who just kind of found themselves with this business and, and doesn't know enough about operations to jump in, it's not just that we're dealing with the competence or incompetence. If if that were the only issue and we didn't have time working against us and we didn't have capital constraints, then we could solve the incompetence competence thing and we wouldn't have to be very creative at all. Right? It would just be like, oh, well, if the person's not competent, then we'll go out and find somebody. If the person is competent, we'll, you know, we'll give ourselves enough time to make that judgment. So the fact that you often have two or three major constraints working with each other to force you into the corner is is usually the situation and that's where people start to feel like well you know this is a really hard problem to solve but before before we get to you know oh this is a hard problem to solve how do we fix you know how do we work on that let me give you some examples of the most common artificial constraints that i run into in the work that i do with companies and um, I see these all the time. It's amazing how you run into these, uh, and you can uh, you can spend you know maybe five or ten or fifteen minutes with the, the leadership team that you're going to be working with, uh, you know, drinking coffee before the meeting and doing some icebreakers and trying to get to know people, and you can start to identify that these are going to be some of the constraints you're going to be dealing with. And so here, the first one and the biggest one. The most most often uh, encountered one is habits. Habits are an artificial constraint. You know, this is the way that we've always done it. Okay, but that doesn't mean that that's the way it's got to always be done. But you and some people would go, well, a habit. That I mean, yeah, technically you could call that a constraint, but I mean, it's not really. You just everybody knows you just have to change the behavior. But here's the deal. People don't solve problems because they feel like there's a constraint that keeps them from solving the problem. 
And if the habit is that thing that's keeping them from solving the problem, then it is, it is a constraint. But it's an artificial one because we know we can remove it. So uh, habits are one of those things that you know we, we identify them and then we're like, okay, we're not going to do that. Sacred cows are another constraint, an artificial constraint. Um, you know, w- we can't let go of that customer. That customer has been with us forever, but you're losing $100,000 a quarter servicing this customer. Yeah, but that customer, I mean, we can't lose. That was our very first customer, you know. Uh, it, that doesn't often happen with customers as much as it happens with employees. Um, you know, the constraint that that's put on me sometimes when I'm trying to solve a business problem for a client is, uh, you know, but we can't move him out of that department. He's always been there. He's run that department for 30 years. We can't, you know, we can't move him. And so I, I have to, to do, in my due diligence work, sacred cows are one of those things that I give special attention to. And sometimes I'll flat out ask the owner if, if they have a pretty good understanding of, of how change management works and if they've been through some kind of strategic planning process in the past. I might just come out and ask them, you know, are there any strategic cow or are there any uh, sacred cows in your business? And uh, and sometimes they'll be able to name them off for me, or they'll say, uh, "I really don't think so." There's you know there's a couple of, of pretty special cows, but I don't know if they're sacred. Um, but if they don't have a lot of experience with that, I will be looking for kind of the telltale signs that there are things in the business that they're not willing to change. Um, you start asking about, you know, what is the culture of the business? And when people start to define the culture as individual personalities or they start to define the culture as individual product lines or they define the culture as uh, specific business locations, you know, offices or, or, or place territories, then you, you start to understand, well, those that's not culture. That's a sacred cow. That's that is an um, that is a thing or a person or a product that you're not willing to change in the business, and you've ascribed the name culture to it because it's it's noble to preserve culture, and so you're trying to call this thing that is really a sacred cow culture because you want to feel noble in protecting it. But what you really need to do is kill the thing because it's holding you back. Or we need to, you know, if it's really sacred, let's escort it out of your pasture and into somebody else's and, and lovingly care for it on the way. But it can't stay here anymore. Sacred cows and habits are two of the biggest things that we run into that companies have painted themselves into a corner with. And it keeps them from becoming creative or they, they work really, really hard to find an extraordinarily creative solution to the problem, which usually ends up being an expensive solution to the problem because they're not willing to acknowledge that these artificial constraints that they have put on themselves can just be done away with and we could solve the problem if we very, very easily if we didn't have to operate within these constraints. Uh, managing around people is another one of those artificial constraints that kind of goes along with sacred cows. When peop- When managers or uh, CEOs are unwilling to um, – well, I should say it a different way. When managers or CEOs are, are only all too willing to make accommodations for specific individuals, that is usually an artificial constraint that needs to be addressed. Uh, assumptions 
can be artificial constraints. Sometimes you find out that the people who are telling you what the constraint is haven't really done their homework. They're just assuming that the market will react this way, or they're assuming that you can't get this technology yet, or they're assuming that um, this habit is too deeply ingrained to really be changed. So assumptions are one of those things that once you call them out as assumptions, nobody wants to be a part of them. Right? So you go, well, do we really know that the competitor is going to react this way or are we assuming that the competitor is going to react this way? And they go, well, yeah, we don't really know for sure. And then everybody starts running from the hills because nobody wants to be associated with an assumption inside a business meeting. That's like you know, wearing the dunce cap. If you're caught assuming – you know, people just assume you're not that bright. So once you call an assumption out, people will usually abandon it. Um, attitudes, I think, can be an artificial constraint. Um, you know, sometimes people are just having a, a rotten day, week, month, quarter, and they're just you know the reason that you're not able to solve the problem creatively, or the reason that you're you're having to go to extraordinary lengths of create uh, uh, great feats of creativity to try to solve the problem is because somebody has a poor attitude in the group. And a, a lot of times that's temporary. If it's, if it's much longer than temporary, then, you know, you may not be able to fix it by addressing the attitude as much as you'd be able to fix it by addressing the person. And then the last uh, kind of artificial constraint that I deal with is fear. Uh, people who, when people don't know what's going to happen, a lot of times they're afraid of it. And creativity, you know, creating something is is quite literally making something that didn't exist before. So it's an unknown. You don't, you never know how it's going to come out. You know, when a life is created, when a when a, a couple, is, a husband and wife decide to have a child, and they create that life. They don't know exactly what's going to happen. I mean, hopefully, every, you know, everybody comes out with ten fingers and ten toes, and they're healthy and happy. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way, and sometimes you want the child to be, you know, in- incredibly athletic and following mom's footsteps or or what have you, and it doesn't work out that. Way. Nobody knows what you're going to get when you create something. You have a general idea. You certainly have hopes for it. But the whole act of creation, the whole act of bringing your creativity to bear to bring something into existence that wasn't there before is fraught with uncertainty. And there are some people who would much rather not deal with the uncertainty. And so their fear of the uncertainty of the unknown becomes a constraint. But it's artificial. You re- and it's, I don't mean to say that these things that I'm calling artificial don't exist. They do exist. They're real. You have to address them. I run into them almost every week when I deal with clients. But they're artificial in the sense that they're not hard constraints that you have to confine yourself within. They are constraints only in the sense that until you acknowledge that they're artificial, they'll hold you back. Once you acknowledge that they're artificial and you start to deal with with removing the constraint, it can be removed. These real constraints, you know, I call them real because we can't remove them, that we have to operate within the bounds of those constraints if we're going to be successful. So 
artificial real constraints that you're going to see why being able to differentiate between the two helps you when you're starting to address the problem. So the very first, so here's my tips and tricks section. This is the part where, um, you know, hopefully this is the stuff that will help you day to day. The first thing I'm going to give you four, I'll give you four things that I think really help in this area. The first thing is to define the problem. Uh, because without a problem to solve, you really don't know how – you don't have any idea what you're trying to create. So if you can define the problem, then you're going to be able to start to understand what constraints there might be to finding a solution to that problem. And defining the problem sounds – it sounds like, uh, oh, that – duh. I mean, of course we're going to define the problem. But – a lot of times people know that something's wrong, but they haven't taken the time to really sit and think about why it's wrong. So, you know, sales are down. Well, why are sales down? What's the problem? Well, the problem is sales are down. No, the sales are down. That's a symptom of something else. Let's, let's actually talk about why are sales down or, um, you know, even higher than that. People might go, well, we're, we're running out of cash. Well, why are we running out of cash? Well, we, we're just – we're spending more than we're bringing in. <laughs> okay, so – but let's understand. Why, why are we running out of cash? Are we spending too much or are we not bringing in enough? And those sound like the same thing, but they're not. So if if our sales forecast based on all the due diligence that we had had us growing at 15% this year and we're right on budget for that but we're running out of cash, it means that we're probably not staying on budget in the spending area. So – well, so what's the problem? Well, okay, so we're spending too much, but why are we spending too much? Um, I don't know. We got to go figure that out. So, defining the problem is one of those things that sounds simple, but it usually involves asking a lot of why questions. And the why questions don't just stop at defining the problem. The next why question you have to ask is why haven't we solved it yet? Now. It could be that we didn't even we didn't know what the real problem was. Sometimes just the act of defining the problem doesn't require any creativity whatsoever. You you keep going back and you go, well, why are we spending too much? Well, we're spending too much because we put the owner's son in charge of purchasing and he doesn't know what he's doing and he's been going through the checkbook balance like a drunken sailor buying all kinds of stuff that we don't need. Uh, the good news is most of it's still in the warehouse. We might be able to sell it back, uh, but the bad news is we don't know how long that's going to take. Okay, so that's so now we've defined the problem, and you go, why haven't we solved that yet? Well, to be honest, this is really the first time we've taken a hard look at it. Okay, so there might be a we might need to exercise some creativity to figure out how to rein in the the uh, owner's son, but for for the most part, that's going to be a pretty simple problem to fix, right? But sometimes you'll run into, you know, when you, you finally get to the the issue, and I'll give you some examples here at the end, um, where, you know, when you say, why haven't we solved it yet? A lot of times it's, it's because, well, we haven't had time to solve it yet. Um, we haven't We haven't had the money to solve it yet. We haven't had the... Um, we don't know. You know, we don't know why we haven't solved it yet. But after you define the problem, when you start to say why haven't we solved it yet, 
what should come out of that, why haven't we solved it yet, are the list of constraints. Well, we haven't had time to solve it yet. Okay, so time has been a constraint. Not time, not time constraint in the sense that we're up against a deadline, but we don't have the resources available. We don't have the people with time to sit down and work on this. So it's, a, it's actually not a time constraint. It's a resource constraint. Um, why haven't you solved it yet? Because um, – let me think of another one. We haven't solved it yet because nobody's been able to go out there and actually take a look at it. Okay, so again, that's another resource constraint. We haven't had the actual people to do it. Um, maybe we have the people, but it can't be solved from our location. It's a distance constraint. We actually have to make some fundamental changes if we're going to be able to solve this from where we sit today. Um, the distance constraint often comes into account in M&A work. So company buys um, – buys a, a subsidiary and they try to fold it into their operation. We've dealt with this a couple times and stuff starts going awry at this newly integrated company. And it's a distance constraint. We physically can't manage the distance between the two spaces as effectively as we were able to do it in one space because having 50 feet from the manager's office to the shop floor is a lot different from having 50 miles from the shop manager's office to the shop floor. So, uh, distance can play a factor there. Those are just examples of why we haven't solved it yet and identifying the constraints. So once you so and you have to ask that this why question a lot. You know, well, why is distance a factor? You might find out that distance is only a factor because their technology is twenty years old, and if they had the right technology, they'd be able to do this. Or you might find out that distance is only a constraint because their processes stink. And if they would put better processes in place, then the distance wouldn't be a factor. But you only get to that if you keep asking why. You know, why haven't you solved it yet? Well, why haven't? Why is why is distance a problem? Well, why is technology the issue? And you keep backing up until you start to understand. Then this is the kind of the third step in the process. What are the things that I'm hearing about all the reasons that I haven't solved it yet? All these constraints are these real constraints or are these artificial constraints? Am I dealing with real things that I'm not going to be able to to move out of the way? I'm going to I'm just going to have to deal with this distance constra- constraint, or I'm going to have to deal with this technology constraint, or I'm going to have to deal with this capital constraint, and and now we're going to get down to business and start solving the problem, or is it artificial? Is this is this just something that they think is the case? And when we really get down to it, this is an assumption that they're making, and I can I can do away with this and. The distance really isn't a factor. The technology really isn't a factor. Um, so once once all the real constraints versus the artificial ones are understood, then you define that sandbox. And you say, here is the amount of money that we have to work with, or here is the, the location parameters that we have to work with, or here are the people that we have to work with, um, Let's get all of those things. Let's get everything that we do have to work with here, and let's start solving the problem. And this is where that scene from Apollo 13 is is a really good example of this. So they didn't just go they, – they didn't define everything that wasn't a constraint. So they didn't say, um, well, we've got some stuff in the space spacecraft that we can probably use to fashion uh, – 
of an adapter for this filter. You know, they didn't say, um, well, we, you know, we thought that time was a bigger constraint than it is, but we actually have a lot more time. Okay, now let's start working on the problem. Now, what they did is they defined the constraints. You know, what are the, the constraints that we have around this problem? And all of those constraints, now they don't matter anymore. Because all that matters is the stuff that we've just dumped out on this table because this is what we have to work with. So once you define the constraints, once you define the fence around the playground, then the playground is the only thing that matters from that point forward. And you need to stop thinking about, well, we can't do this and we can't do – you focus on what you have to work with. And this is, a, this is I think, is kind of the key – critical turning tipping point, however you want to call it, of this uh, creative constraint process, creative constraint process. If you do, and and some people would call this, you know, the pre-work or the due diligence work or whatever, but there's a lot of stuff that go, that happens before you start actually solving the problem, before you start actually being creative. And that stuff is all that stuff is is trying to understand what are the real constraints and what are not constraints. Because once we understand what the constraints are, then we can start start taking stock of well, what are the resources that we do have available to fix this problem. So uh, in Apollo 13, they dump all the stuff on the table and they start working through it. In my work, we uh, we talk about the dollars that we have available to solve it the amount of time that we have available to solve it, the people that we're going to have available to work on it, the plant resources or, or staff members or you know, whatever kind of business it is, what are we going to have available uh, to us to work on it? And then if it makes sense, and a lot of times it does, we get all of those people, you know, the, the living, breathing resources that we have, we get those all in the same place and sometimes the physical resources in the same place will go to the plant, will go to the factory, will go to the warehouse or whatever it is, and we'll say, let's solve this problem. Because once we've done that, we're focused on what's in the sandbox. We're focused on the playground. And we can stay on the playground and we can go all the way out to the edges of the fence because we know where that fence is. And all of a sudden, some really creative stuff starts to happen. So I'll give you a couple of uh, examples of how this has worked out for me um, in some of our client engagements. We had a client who was just basically missing their budget numbers, and they were they they had some kind of broad budget number goals, but they just weren't hitting them. We said, "Well, why why aren't you hitting your budget numbers?" In this case, it was budgeted sales numbers. Why aren't you hitting your your budgeted sales numbers? Well, we're you know we we're just we're doing we've been working on this and then th- that next year we're working on this other thing and the next year we're working on this other thing and the next year we're working on this other thing. Okay, so it sounds to me like the reason you're missing your sales goals is because you haven't been focused on sales. And I go, well, yeah, that's that's probably the case. Okay, so why haven't you been focused on sales? Well, we just haven't had time. Okay, so. When, when somebody says we, we don't have time, it means that they have a resource constraint. And so I said, okay, so you, you have a resource constraint. But one of the things that we've been working on for the last year is getting these better tool sets in place so that 
you would have more time. The tool sets are supposed to be making up for this time deficiency by making the company more efficient. And you go, yeah, that that's kind of worked, but you know, we've got this thing and the other thing. And so very quickly you start to understand that the number one constraint to hitting the budget is limited focus. Like the the managers are stretched so thin and they're the ones who make a lot of the the um the sales that Sales just aren't happening. So what we have to do is we have to operate within the knowledge that we're only going to get a limited number of sales hours out of them on a weekly, monthly, quarterly, annual basis. So how are we going to focus that? What are the things that we need to focus on the most uh, given the very limited amount of time uh, or hours we have of their, their focus available? And so for me, that became the constraint. You know, so we have to figure out a way to solve this problem uh, basically in about two hours a week because that's all we're going to get of their time. So how do we build urgency around hitting the sales mark in two hours a week? Well, that's very hard to do because weekly um, in their sales cycle, you're not going to close deals in a week. So you have to have something that's a lot more immediate uh, to focus their attention on if you're going to be able to hit those sales goals and have to actually have something that motivates them to action. So we we kept talking and kept talking and asking, well, why this, why that, why this, why that? Well, basically, so at the end of the day, what it came down to is I felt like that two hours a week should really be spent looking at their pipeline. But before we could get to pipeline, we had to – we had to look at scheduling. So pipeline dealt deals with the sales pipeline. How many prospects do you have coming in? Who's on your kind of hot sheet of people that you need to be working with and touching base with? And when you're trying to make sales goals, that's, that's not rocket science. It's like, well, of course you need to be focused on your pipeline. But in this case, in order to get to the pipeline, we first had to deal with the work that was out there in the field because the, the one thing that could get their attention away from pipeline – was a project that was behind schedule. So it counterintuitively, somewhat counterintuitively, we said, well, we're not going to focus on the pipeline per se. We're going to focus on scheduling because if the schedule is being taken care of, you guys are going to have to look at something else. And what else are you going to look at? You're going to look at the pipeline because that's where their attention would be drawn. So we tasked one person in the company who wasn't one of those managers with doing the scheduling and the forecasting and the job um, job resource charts of you know deciding what crew was going to be where and how long they were going to be there and when the customer was going to be told the job was going to start and when the customer was going to be told the job could be expected to be finished and we said look if if the ske- the, the thing that has to happen here is this scheduling piece has to be four weeks out. And we know that in the next four weeks, a lot of stuff is going to change around the schedule. I mean, it's just going to happen. You know, not every schedule is going to, it's like, you know, they say the best laid battle plans don't survive the the first contact with the enemy. And that's kind of the way with scheduling. You you can say that we're going to schedule this four weeks out, but two weeks from now, it's likely that's going to have changed. That's okay. That's, I don't care about that. Just make sure that it's scheduled four weeks out and then update your customers as delays happen or things get moved around. 
So it took them about three or four months to get that scheduling piece down. But once they got it down, what did they start to get concerned about? What's going to come next? They start going, oh, crap. You know, we've got everything we've got scheduled, and it only goes out four weeks. Or we've got everything we've got scheduled, and it only goes out three weeks. Or we've got everything we've got scheduled, and it only goes out six weeks. What are we going to do on week seven, week eight, week nine, week ten? Who's in our pipeline? Who do we need to be focused on? What should we be doing with them? And so some people might look at that and go, ah, you know, big deal. You're solving business problems. But to see the process happen, it was very counterintuitive how we got there. And, and that counterintuitive aspect of it has to do with the creativity that was involved in finding a solution that overcame the constraints that we had to deal with. So, you know, that's one example. I could, I could give you a couple more, but, you know, I think, well, I'll give you one more. So we had, um, we had a, a, a contracting company and one of their big concerns or big issues was job site safety, quality assurance and job site safety. And the owner cares about his employees. He doesn't want anybody to get hurt. He also wants his reputation in the industry to be one of, you know, these guys have a high safety record and we can trust them on our properties because we know everybody's going to get looked after. But, you know, as try as you might to control the behavior of some 100 people out in the field, not everybody's going to see it your way. And so we had to find a way to get safety compliance where it needed to be on the job site. And they tried all kinds of things. They tried, you know, sending guys home. But the problem was, you know, you, you can't have 100 percent compliance with that because you don't – if a guy doesn't do what he's supposed to on a job site – you're not going to catch him every time. If you're, if you're guaranteed to catch people every single time and you sent them home every single time, that would be an easy fix. Pretty soon you get 100% compliance. But in this case, we couldn't enforce it 100% of the time, so our enforcement was spotty, and you know they would basically play the odds because they knew the odds were in their favor. So we tried that. Nah, that didn't really work. We tried buying new equipment that was easier to use, and that didn't really work. We tried... Um, we tried all kinds of stuff and no, it didn't really work. So we're dealing with the constraint had to do – a lot of the constraint had to do with how spread out our um, our inspection force was because they're all over the place. And so you've got problems that are happening out in the field and you've got inspectors who are out in the field, but the inspectors can't get the information back early enough for us to really address it because, you know, one inspector might be returning, you know, we might hear from him on Tuesday that, yeah, I ran into these three crews and and they all had issues. But then the next guy comes back in, you know, a week later and he's like, yeah, I ran into those same three crews on the next day and they were doing it. And so we send a guy out to look at those three crews today and it's two weeks after the first event, a week after the second event, and all of a sudden all three crews are, you know, they're, they're fine today. And so we had this real inconsistent kind of feedback mechanism going on in the field where the information was coming in in, in so many different delayed formats that it just wasn't making sense. And so we said, well, what would if we had kind of like a rapid response scenario where we could – uh, we could identify who was deficient, 
right now today, you know, who was deficient at 9 a.m. when the site, site inspector showed up and who was deficient at 12 p.m. and who was deficient at 3 p.m. and who was deficient at 5 p.m., then we might actually have a chance to jump on this stuff and and get it rectified so that it made a, a difference. Well, we had some real serious constraints with that. We had guys who were running all over the county and we didn't have the manpower inside the office to field phone calls. We didn't have they didn't have the time to draft an email every time they wanted to do, you know, they needed to report back in because there was just too much data for them to fill out. It didn't make sense for them to fill out a paper form because we were going to get those back. They didn't check into the office every day. We were only going to get those back every two or three days. And so we had some pretty serious constraints. And the other constraint we had was that we didn't have a whole lot of money to spend on this thing. We had spent money in other places in the business. And in some cases, we were told, well, yeah, you can do this and you can buy everybody a tablet and uh, we've got this special software that will run on it, and you can even video conference from the field if that's what you need to do. And like, yeah, but you know, we don't have fifty thousand dollars to spend on this thing. So, what they came up with was a, a very simple form uh, that could be loaded from a web page on any smartphone in any pocket of any inspector, and it had about six questions on it that they could answer, and if they answered. Um, the the planned responses for those questions were yes. So if everything was fine on the job site, they would just hit yes, 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 yes to those five questions and hit submit, and it was all you know. It automatically went into the office, and no alarm bells went off or buzzers or anything like that. It was just okay. So we know that that one's okay. But if any one of those questions said no. Then there was a second little area where they had to fill out what the deficiency was. And if a response was marked no, it went to a very specific person in the company, and they noted that, hey, crew such and such at this time was deficient in this area. And then three hours later, if the same uh, this, the same job site had another inspector stop by and had another deficiency, then we knew that it was probably systemic. And we had a pretty good chance that if we sent a supervisor out there the next day, we're going to find some of the same problems. And so very quickly, these guys started to figure out that, you know, these inspectors, they're here like two or three or four times a day. And we don't know when they're coming. Sometimes we don't even know what they look like. But every time, sometimes even before they get out of their truck, they're answering these five questions about the job site. And this is going to be happening all day, every day. So we should we, – we pretty much know that if, if we get tagged twice in a day, we're going to have a supervisor sneaking up on us to, to catch us doing what we're not supposed to be doing. And they started to solve the problem very quickly. So, again, and that was – why was that creative? Because we had never asked the inspectors to do anything like that at all. But they were the only people who could solve this problem of having – 100 different people spread out over such a large geographic area. They were the only people who were in any kind of position whatsoever to um, to cover that area. So we started to look at we didn't at once we identified that they were the only resource that we had in the area, we very quickly focused our attention on not the fence, not the constraint that we had to deal with, but the sandbox. What do we have 
within the playground that we can work with. We got inspectors there. What do they have with them? They all have smartphones. Is there something we can do with those smartphones so that we get real-time feedback on these sites every single, you know, every couple of hours, every single day? And it was from that point, the solution, and this is one of those where they go, wow, you know, this was right under our nose. I can't believe we didn't think of this sooner. You know, but the reason they hadn't thought of it sooner they, is because they didn't have a way to apply it. They didn't have a way to apply it within the constraint system they were dealing with. Now, one of the – so I'll go back to – this is my last little piece. I'll go back to the, um, the idea that a lot of the constraints that you run into are going to be uh, resource constraints around capital um, or res- resource constraints around time. So we don't have we don't have enough time to do that, and we don't have enough capital to do that. So uh, one of the ways that I like to solve problems inside companies, if if it's a big problem, they go, you know, and a lot of times this happens in the very beginning of a strategic planning engagement. So they say we want to grow, we want to go from being a five million dollar company to a ten million dollar company. Um, come help us do that. Help us build the plan and help us grow. And so a lot of times, in order to to get to that point, there's some housekeeping that needs to be done. And whether you ask the question, you know, what's a problem you guys have been trying to solve that you just haven't been able to get your arms around or what's a real pain in your side that we might should address first, or if while you're doing the due diligence, you see, oh, you know, this is really going to be an issue that holds us back. We need to solve it. So whether they volunteer it or whether you find it, you identify that this is a pretty big issue inside the company. It's a housekeeping issue that we have to take care of, something that's going to have to be fixed. And one of my favorite exercises is to to um, create two constraints for the company to fix this problem. And a lot of times just creating these two constraints will get them thinking in a creative mode because, again, they don't think about the fence anymore. They think about what they have inside the fence, what's inside the playground that they have to work with. So the, what I tell them – is that if you if you if this problem is something that you really want to solve, give me five weeks and five thousand dollars to help solve it, and we scale that number. So five and I, I kind of the rule of thumb that I use is five weeks and five thousand dollars for a million dollar in revenue company for every million dollars in revenue. So if you have a ten million dollar company, it's going to be five weeks and fifty thousand dollars. If you have a $20 million company, it's going to be five weeks and $100,000. But you know, for a 2 to $3 million company, which a lot of the companies that want to embark on strategic planning, you know, it's not uncommon for them to be two, $3 million companies that want to break through and get to that $5 million level. And once you get to five, you want to break through and get to 10. And once you get to 10, you want to get to around 15 to 18. And then from 18 to 25, 30, that's a whole different ballgame. But if you're at that, say, $2 million level, and you go, hey, give me five weeks and $10,000, and let's try to solve this problem. And they go, you know, there's no way we could do that for $10,000. People have told us it's going to cost 10 times that, and it's going to take a year. And you go, yeah, but let's just – let's assume that all we have is five weeks and $10,000, and let's go to work. Who, do, who, who else are you going to be able to give me? Do I have to use some of that $10,000 to go out and hire temp labor? Do I have to use it to hire consultants? Uh, do you have people in-house that we can use it for? 
Um, you know, what, what are the resources that we have? We know we have five weeks and we know we have $10,000. What else do we have? What, what, what inventory are we going to have to work with? Uh, what plant resources are we going to have to work with? What people are we going to have to work with? Uh, let's get everybody in the same place. Let's put the $10,000 and the five-week deadline on the board, and let's see if we can solve this problem. And I've solved more problems that way. Uh, and truth be told, I usually don't have to get involved all that much. All I have to do is kick it off. I come back in 30 days, and the problem's solved, or the problem's you know going to be solved within the next week or two. So, you know that's that's the kind of stuff that um, you know those little tricks of identifying a set dollar amount and a set deadline really starts to focus people's attention on the problem. And when they'll focus on the problem instead of all the things they can't do about the problem, all the constraints that they have, then it becomes very hard to solve it. But if you'll define those constraints and make sure that everybody knows which ones are real and which ones aren't, then focusing on a solution becomes not an easy thing to do, but it's a very clarifying thing to do. So that's about all I've got on constrained creativity. I hope that uh, some of it was useful to you. One of the things that we did last week and we're doing this week and we'll probably probably make a regular feature of the show is we're live streaming the recording. And for the last two weeks, we've done it on Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And so if you're interested in that, we're using Google Hangouts to do it. Um, I'll find a way to publicize that probably on our blog. You can go to axiomstrategic.com and find the uh, link to the next uh, live podcast recording. I want to say thanks again for the folks who are commenting on iTunes. I really appreciate that. If you want the show notes that talk about, uh, they'll have links to the articles that we mentioned, links to that uh, Apollo 13 video, anything else I think of over the next 24, 48 hours or so before this goes live Monday morning. I'll post my notes up on um, uh, there, and you can find that at axiomstrategic.com slash podcast slash 010. Uh, so until next week, I'm your host, Joey Brandon. Thanks for checking in. It's been a lot of fun.